Hi everyone, my name is Muskan Nanda and you're listening to Person of Influence, a podcast that discusses mindfulness, entrepreneurship, and leadership. Today for our episode, we have Dr. Renee Mehdi, who is the founder of withpause.com. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be here. Renee, it's so great to have you here. Can you start by telling a little bit about withpause.com? Sure, I'd love to. So my name is Renee Meddy, and I actually came to mindfulness um, through my preschool. I have a mindfulness-based preschool that I founded in 2010. And with pause emerged from that because I was bringing mindfulness curriculum to two and a half to five-year-olds. And then the parents were asking, what's this mindfulness thing you're doing with my kiddo? And then I started doing some parent workshops and then they had stressful jobs. So they started bringing me into their organizations. And I never in a million years thought that I would ever work with adults. And it was really through mindfulness where I could see some of the kind of reactions when I would do workshops. I would get that same like three-year-old look, that wide-eyed wonder and interest that I would see in preschoolers and I was seeing it in adults. And so that's really where my shift in uh, mindfulness started in working with adults. Are you still teaching mindfulness to preschoolers? And, uh, given what's going on, we had to close down, hopefully temporarily, um, but we brought the preschool online and then I work mostly with leadership. I work with educators. Um, and that is where With Pause came from. All of us are kind of stuck at home, and I thought mindfulness would be a great start to kind of get people feeling who are feeling anxious at home some tips. Yeah, this is a great conversation and a perfect time for it. What changes have you noticed over the course of the pandemic for you and your company? When I started With Pause, it really was... Um, to bring mindfulness into organizations and into schools and into teachers' lives and leaders' lives. And now, um, and even back then, it was, you know, not totally mainstream. And I would even say it's still not fully mainstreamed now, but what's going on now in the world, it's really giving almost like a platform to have these conversations and people are finding more value in it. The main difference between when I started it back in 2014 to now is that I used to lead with mindfulness and now mindfulness is just the lens in which I look at everything through all the different leadership skills. You know, how does mindfulness help with communication, with resilience, with being anti-fragile, with being um, in conflict with others, right? And in relationship with others and just in relationship with your own experience. How would you explain some of the changes that have been going on? Life is just integrated now, right? We're all working from home. Our kiddos are home. Um, everybody's home and maybe together in tight spaces and with different situations. So I think it's just having that awareness to see how you're relating to all of these experiences. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you define mindfulness? Um, so for me, mindfulness is really just paying attention to any particular moment with curiosity and kindness. Being okay with whatever is happening in your life with the situation, the emotions you're feeling, the thoughts you might be having. It's being in the moment without wanting to change what's going on. What are some challenges you faced with mindfulness in your own practice? 
you know, I think one of the biggest challenges that many people face is finding the time to do it. Some of the challenges for me as someone that was learning about mindfulness and then became a facilitator and bringing it to other people is the construct around a daily practice and what does that look like? So there's formal sitting and then there's informal practice. And so for me over the past decade, that has changed quite a bit. So um, if you ask me, do I have a daily practice? Absolutely, I have a daily practice. <laughs> do I sit for 45 minutes, an hour a day, every day? Uh, the intention is to do that, but practice can show up in so many ways. So I don't always sit for that long. Um, I will often sit daily for at least five or 10 minutes. My kind of average time is 30 minutes, but the awareness piece is the practice that, you know, there's a lot of conversations I've had, particularly recently, and having a formal practice and what does that look like? And I don't have time to go sit for 30 minutes a day. So for a lot of my executive leaders, we're starting at a minute or two minutes. And I have an executive leader that I did not introduce mindfulness to because it just didn't seem, she didn't seem that receptive to it in the beginning. So it took about six months before I started just introducing the concept. And so I was waiting for the right opening. And now six months later after that, she practices every day for five minutes. And wow. for me, that's huge. And it has been the most impactful thing in our year long, um, our year together and my coaching her that she keeps coming back to that awareness piece and how it's changed so many pieces of her life, not just professionally, but personally. Would you recommend starting with just a minute or two for people who are kind of new to mindfulness? Absolutely. I think um, one of the best pieces of advice, wisdom um, that I received was I sat with Sharon Salzberg, uh, who is one of my teachers, and she, somebody had asked in the group, you know, how important is it to sit every day? And, you know, she kind of thought about it and she said, when you commit to sitting, you know, let's say the data or science says you only have to sit 10 minutes a day, three times a week, right? And so you're at the beginning of your week, it's Sunday, and you're like, oh, I have six more days, I'm not gonna do it today. And then you get to Tuesday, you're like, oh, I still have, you know, four more days. And then all of a sudden it's Saturday and then there's no time, right? You, now your three days aren't in. And so, you know, on one hand, the daily practice is helpful to do it every day because it takes the thought process out of it. It just becomes part of your routine and your habit. And it's similar to exercise, right? You're, we're building our mental muscle or our muscle in the brain to hone our attention. And so if you can just practice one minute, two minutes and start developing that habit to do it every day, then you take the negotiation piece out of it. I absolutely love that. And for any of the listeners listening in, do you have any other habits that can help listeners cultivate that everyday practice because it can be hard with kids, family, members. Sure. You know, as a type A personality and a recovering perfectionist, um, some of the challenges, this feeds back into your question about challenges, some of the things that I struggled with also helped in my practice. So Mindfulness is about just being okay with the experience, being aware of what's going on right now, pleasant or unpleasant, without wanting to change anything. Because all of our suffering typically comes from wanting something to be different than it is, right? And so um, 
some of the things in the beginning of my practice as a type A personality would be like, you know, the checklist. I practiced every day, check, right? <laughs> and that, you know, the most important thing for me around mindfulness is that it becomes just who you are. So I'll often talk about mindfulness in two ways. It's, you know, something that you do, that you practice, um, and then it's, or it's a technique or a tool that you use, and then it's a way of being, right? And so just bringing that mindfulness, that presence into your daily interactions, it's not like you're mindful all day long, but there's just a certain way that you relate to people and to your experience in the world that shifts when you're practicing daily and when you are, so in the beginning, you know, sometimes there's like gamified ways that you can do it and you can use apps and, and when I look at the science of just how to build a habit, right, that's just like, there's a cue and then there's a reward. So, you know, the reward doesn't have to necessarily be something tangible or monetary. Maybe the reward is just like the feeling of clarity or ease that comes with practice for some people, right? And so post-it notes, you know, reminders on your phone, um, reminders on your computer, notifications, those kinds of things. But as you start practicing, you know, the notifications and the things buzzing at you at your phone is the thing that you're pushing away and kind of reducing in your life. So to get started, I think there are so many entryways into mindfulness that um, find what works for you is often what I, what I tell people. It's just bringing an awareness to what you're doing. And that could be, you know, that formal, informal practice or the formal practice of sitting, but then the informal practice of sitting without an agenda. What does an informal practice look like in your life? You do it while you're cooking or when you're just sitting alone? All over. Um, it, you know, it's just become part of the fabric of my life. And so sometimes I joke around like I don't really want to be aware anymore because <laughs> things I'll become aware of things that I'm just like, oh, that, I didn't really want to see that or know that. Um, but some of the informal practices uh, – and this is great for beginners too. It's just like, you know, I was the type of person that would set, and I still do set five or six alarms to get up in the morning, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, snooze, snooze, snooze. And then that last alarm goes off and I'm like popping out of bed and going to brush my teeth, make my coffee and just diving into the day. Right. And so an informal practice that I started playing around with is when you hit that last alarm or when you know you're going to get out of bed, whether you're sitting up or laying down, just taking a conscious breath, you know, and sometimes for some people who are just super busy minded or just very action oriented, it's one conscious inhale and one conscious <laughs> exhale. And then you're on with your day. Right. And then maybe you increase that to three breaths before you get out of bed. And then, you know, and so I use this layering approach where for people that it's really difficult to do that or they think they don't have time. It's like you do the three conscious breaths and you put your feet on your on the ground and you bring attention to the bottom of your feet so you can feel the carpet, the hardwood floor, the tile, whatever it is. And so that informal practice of just bringing awareness to what you're doing, waking up, brushing your teeth, washing the dishes, you know, taking a walk outside. And sometimes it's just sitting and looking out the window 
or sitting outside at a park or taking a walk and just stopping what you're doing and just looking around and observing. You know, mindfulness, you know, in its simplest form for me is like noticing. What do you notice? And how do we filter out what we notice? It's, it's hard for people to come into the practice and know exactly what they should be focusing on. Should it be on the news? Should it be on their family mm. and themselves? Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, man, that, that question alone, I think, is <laughs> its own podcast. <laughs> um, so there's a couple of things. And, and my mindfulness journey and practice was really about... Um, coming home, coming inward, back to kind of finding true nature, like who am I and what do I really like versus kind of my conditioned responses to the external world, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think what it really comes down to for um, what I could say for your listeners is what's your intention for starting a practice, right? Is it for just an overall sense of well-being? Is it um, kind of a last ditch effort to help with anxiety or different things that you're dealing with personally? So as with anything I think that we do, there should be some intention behind it. Can you give an example? An example would be if I'm working with a leader and they're looking to um, increase their performance, right? So then their intention is to just that, like, how do I filter all the distractions that are pulling, pulling at me that lead me to being unable to focus at work or even on family or at home? So I think it really comes down to like, what are your values? And uh, I'll often, you know, we often don't think about our intention or even our philosophy, like life philosophy. Do you have your own kind of life philosophy or a work philosophy and are they the same? Are they different? Um, so I think it really does come down to intention uh, in terms of what to focus on. Because for some it's they need to pay more attention to work and for some it's family. How did you get started with your mindfulness journey? Mm -hmm. uh, my journey I think is not typical. You know, all things considered, I had a beautiful childhood, loving, supportive parents, no real like big T trauma, um, had some work stress along the way. But I, at the time, I didn't really look at that as trauma. Um, and so bringing mindfulness to children was my first effort around mindfulness. And so being a type A East Coaster, to me, mindfulness was kind of hippy dippy stuff. And that I didn't need it, right? Because I was type A and on point and had everything together. And so um, it was during the 2008 kind of the real estate crash and that, you know, the economy falling apart and friends and family losing jobs and things like that, that um, I was seeing some of my close family and friends really struggling with, you know, mild depression, anxiety, and different mental health um, things. And so I thought, you know, I have these preschools in front of me that are so open and wide-eyed and, you know, ready to learn anything. What could I bring them so that when they were adults, they wouldn't have to deal with as much baggage. And so I knew that it wasn't something that would go away necessarily, but I figured there had to be something. So I did a Google search for like children and anxiety, children and depression, and mindfulness kept coming up. 
And so that's really how I discovered mindfulness um, and curriculum. And I bought that right away. And at the time, it was pretty early on in the field of mindfulness and education. And everything out there was for kindergarten and up. So there was not much at all for preschool. And so when I started diving in a little bit and adapting curriculum, uh, Mindful Schools was a fabulous organization that I found. Um, and I did their certification program. And it was through their certification program that uh, there was a two and a half day silent retreat at the beginning of it, and then workshops and mindfulness practice all throughout the eight days. And, but it was that first moment of completely silent through, you know, being with people, but not being able to talk to them and having this container of most distractions taken away, really with the instructions of like going inward, avoiding eye contact as much as possible, not reading signs on the wall, and just taking away all that stimuli. And what I came out of that completely transformed. So I cut my speed in half in terms of how fast I was moving in the world. So I know you've done a Vipassana retreat. Yeah. Can you speak more to Vipassana? Mm. (laughs) Sure. Uh, So I did my first Vipassana retreat. um, It's been some time now, like five years ago, maybe six years ago. And um, so what a Vipassana retreat looks like, they have centers all over the world, is 10 days and that's 10 full days. So that doesn't count the, count the day you arrive or the day you leave. So you're practicing, you know, you come in at four, you know, you have dinner, they give you some instructions. And then it's, um, you know, from my perception, it's a pretty strict practice of really going inward. Um, you're focusing on the breath. It's basically a course in teaching you how to focus on sensations in your body and noticing sensations. What did you particularly enjoy about your Vipassana retreat? Um, What I love about Vipassana is, you know, the awareness of breath and sensations and then the insight that comes from that. And so um, they start at very, like, you're noticing the breath in your nose for like a whole day. And then you move to like this triangle of the nose, you know, and the mouth. And then like it's day... I can't remember if it's day three or day four. They call it Vipassana day. <laughs> and, uh, and they check in with you. Did you feel sensations like right here? You know, and that's a very narrow, minute space where you're honing all your attention into this little tiny space, right? Where usually our attention is pulled in so many different directions. And so what you'll notice, there are mandatory three one-hour sits where you are not moving. You're sitting in a certain position and you're trying to stay still you notice an itch they encourage you not to scratch it because it's really you're really just watching the waves you know i love the itch example because what happens is an itch arises right and if you stay with it you will watch it disappear but so often we have an itch and we're like automatically responding to it so it's this impulse so you start noticing your impulses you start noticing your thought patterns when you start feeling a little bit of pain in your hip or your leg or your back while you're sitting, right? And then all of a sudden you notice where your mind goes. So it gives you some insight into the nature of your mind when you are uncomfortable. It also sounds very intense though. If if you had to do it over and go into a Vipassana retreat, how would you prepare yourself? Yeah. (laughs) 
I laugh because um, I think about if you've ever had children, for me, like the first time is so exciting. You don't know what to expect. And I think the second time around is almost worse because you know what to expect. And so to choose to do it again is like a whole different ballgame. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I would, there's nothing to prepare because it's your experience. And I think going in with an intention, you know, to be as open and receptive as possible when you go in. Some people might need some mental preparation. The other thing about Vipassana, um, I had heard about these 10-day retreats, but I didn't know the details of it. And as it got closer and people started knowing that I was going, all of a sudden you find out the other people that have done it and they started giving me information. And I'm like, I don't want to know. <laughs> like that will scare me if you tell me all, all of all of the things that I'll have to endure while I'm there. And so one of them is um, waking up at 4 a.m. Wow. And, and then um, the other is that you have breakfast and lunch. So you have like 6 a.m., 6.30 breakfast, and you have like an 11.30 lunch. And then if you've never been before, you get to eat fruit at 5.00. But if you've been more than once, like if it's your second time plus, then you only get tea with no honey, no sugar, no nothing at five. And so for me at the time, that was the biggest thing I was worried about was food. <laughs> Going into a Vipassana retreat, how would you measure success? I hate saying that, but how, how would you get I know. <laughs> out of this? This is a tough question. I think it is an important question. Um, because it is hard to measure, but I know there are some wonderful people out in the field trying to bring more science and data to it as much as possible, um, but it's such a personal experience, right? So most of the measurement is on the anecdote of how you experienced it, you know, and I, I've done a couple of Vipassana retreats and it's going to be different every single time, right? And it's so dependent on where your space is, where your headspace is, what's going on in your world, who the facilitator is, who the people are around you. So you can't not walk away with something. And so if you walk away with even the insight, like, I never want to do that again, <laughs> I would look at that as success because it's bringing awareness, right? If you become aware of one thing in your life that can change or shift the way you look at things, um, I think that's successful. Now, that doesn't mean it was a pleasant experience, right? I mean, it can be unpleasant. Um, and I think how you respond to it maybe would be a way to determine, quote unquote, success. But um, I really think it's such a personal experience that um, it depends on how you, you know, what you mean by measure and for what purpose the measurement is for. So one of the challenges I've faced in my own practice is just that mindfulness is not linear. And, you know, you could do so well for a week and then the next week one bad incident happens and suddenly you're back to ground zero or you've actually reversed your progress. How do you deal with that? That's success. I mean, that that's the human condition. And so... I think when people begin understanding that, oh, that is life, that it's up and it's down. And, um, and that was the part, you know, when you asked, how do I define mindfulness? 
It's about just being with the experience that you're having without changing it. So, you know, I can go through the same retreat format with the same teacher, you know, an hour apart from each other and have completely different experience. You're always a beginner, you know, the the beginner's mind is just one of the kind of tenets or concepts in mindfulness and around mindfulness and being a practitioner for over almost 10 years, I'm still a beginner. I'm learning new things. I'm peeling new layers away. And I think that's kind of the fun and the beauty of mindfulness too, is like, you're, you're just learning new things. You know, one of the formal definitions with John Kabat-Zinn is around non-judgment and not bringing judgment to your experience. And that's probably one of the biggest things that has uh, transformed for me is that everything is just information. So it's not like, oh, I got bad news or bad information or someone gave me negative feedback. It's like a mirror, turn it back to myself, and then I look at it as information. Does it hurt sometimes? Absolutely. Does it, do I get excited by things? Absolutely. But it's still information. By having the practice, I can look at the information and then make a decision. You know, it's always a choice point. What am I going to do with that information? How is that going to impact the next action or behavior or thought? Mm, Yeah, I completely agree. By labeling something as good, bad, or even neutral, we're, we're conditioned to think of the situation in a certain light or a certain perspective, whereas experiences are filled with both good and bad. And classifying an experience as only good or only bad and chasing after that good or trying to avoid that bad, we're actually limiting the spectrum of experience that we can have. And it takes away from the good and bad when we think about it holistically. Anyway. In the final moments of the podcast, I wanted to know a little bit more about withpause.com and how people can find you online and how. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so they can find me. Um, so all my contact information is on my website, uh, but my email is connect at withpause.com. And then you can find me on Facebook um, at withpause, uh, Instagram at withpause. I am in and out of social media. Um, and then LinkedIn, you can find me just under Renee Meddy. Perfect. Thank you so much, Renee, for yeah. coming and sharing with our audience about mindfulness and your practice. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for thinking of me. Once again, my name is Muskan Nanda, and thanks for listening to Person of Influence.